earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends, and thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today's part one in a new series, This Means War. This will be a sober look at spiritual warfare and serve as a spiritual warfare primer. And remember, the podcasts are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Well, part one, today's maiden voyage in this series, friends, is called, Yes, Virginia, There Is a Satan. The day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2, signaled the day when the Holy Spirit, through the church, went on the offensive with the gospel message. And that offensive became offensive, if you will, to the world, represented by and epitomized by the Roman Empire, pagan to the core. That offensive became offensive to the so-called religious elite within Judaism, who I nickname the JRL, short for the Jewish religious leaders. Why? Because they had been resting on their religious laurels, so to speak, comfortably supervising and acting as religious guardians, regulating and monitoring the spiritual life of national Israel, a religious life that had deteriorated into ritualistic external formalism, and which, for the most part, had sucked the inward life, the relational life with their covenant God, Yahweh, right out of it. So when the true gospel broke into their world, it became offensive to the religious world they were supervising. And last but not least, friends, the true gospel became offensive to the underworld. In other words, the demonic world under the guardianship of Satan. His very name, Satan, means adversary, accuser, one who opposes, attacks, resists, and hinders. So I'm curious, friends, how many of you listening to me today believe that Satan is an actual real being bent on destroying you. Well, my title today, Yes, Virginia, There is a Satan, is actually a parody on an editorial written back in 1897. You see, the editor of the then New York Sun replied to a letter to the editor by an eight-year-old girl named Virginia who asked if there really was a Santa Claus. And the editor, a man named Francis Church, as part of his reply exclaimed, Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. So, yes, Virginia, there is a Satan. Well, America's most famous pollster, George Barna, some time ago surveyed people in general, and Christians in particular. The results were pretty disturbing and alarming. 60% of adults surveyed said the devil is not an actual living being, but is merely a symbol of evil. 
50% of born-again Christians surveyed denied that Satan existed. And it's curious that the largest percentage of people saying the devil is non-existent and only a symbol of evil are Catholics, 73%. And I also find it interesting that just a few years prior to this survey, 81% of people surveyed believed that angels exist and influence people's lives. Friends, perhaps you're familiar with the well-loved and watched TV series from the past, Angel. Well, in an episode that I happened to catch one day, one of the characters remarked, Most people don't even acknowledge evil, let alone try and fight it. Charles Baudelaire, French poet who lived in the early 1800s, rightly said, The devil's best ruse is to persuade us that he does not exist. Yet, the late Billy Graham once affirmed, I believe in the devil for three reasons. One, the Bible plainly says he exists. Two, I see his work everywhere. And three, great scholars have recognized his existence. So, friends, I'd like to begin our tour of duty in this war, searching out the Reverend Billy Graham's first point. The Bible plainly says he exists. And by the way, we'll find that God the Father acknowledges Satan's existence. God the Son, Jesus Christ, acknowledges Satan's existence. And God the Holy Spirit acknowledges that Satan exists. And it's no surprise that the Bible authors themselves acknowledge that Satan exists. Let's first take a look at one of these authors, the Apostle Peter, in his first letter. 1 Peter 5, 5-11. Peter's first letter was written to persecuted and suffering Christians who'd been scattered throughout five regions in the empire. We learn this from chapters 1 through 4, as each of these chapters lead up to chapter 5, addressing suffering in one form or another. Chapter 5 begins with Peter encouraging and strengthening his fellow elders in the midst of this persecution and suffering. While verse 5 begins by highlighting his attention to younger men, it finishes with appealing to all of you, which I believe refers back to all the recipients of his letter, as mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1. In other words, all the Christians scattered abroad in the empire. So, here's First Peter 5, 5-11. through 11. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up or exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, friends, this portion begins with the idea of clothing yourself. And there's a cultural understanding here that we cannot just skip over. Clothed refers to a common part of dress at that time, a girdle or an apron. It was gathered and tied around one's waist with a belt when getting ready for work. It actually functioned as a badge of servitude and why Peter uses it to augment or enhance his reference to humility. A 21st century parallel might be to say, roll up your sleeves and serve alongside one another with an attitude of humility. Why? Because verse 5 continues by informing us that God opposes the proud but extends favor to the humble. Therefore, as verse 6 begins, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, or at the proper time, as the NAS translate it. You see, friends, there's a proper time for each of us to be exalted or lifted up to a position, and there's a proper time for us not to be elevated to a position. That's why Peter reminds us that God does the elevating in his perfect time. Our part is to do the humbling. Because my take on this, friends, is that the humble person is the one who will be alerted to and sensitive to the prowling enemy of our souls. The humble person will be sober-minded. And this word Peter uses is a cool word, friends. Many English translations have sober as part of this verse, like be sober-minded or be of sober spirit or just plain sober. Some more modern translations say things like be serious or be watchful, even be reflective or keep your mind clear. One translation even has curb every passion. The word used here actually means at its core, abstain from wine, do not get drunk or intoxicated. Metaphorically, it stands for being free from the intoxicating influences of sin or being free from the impact of selfish passions or greed. The idea communicated by this word is to have presence of mind, clear judgment, even to have one's wits or faculties about them, or being rational. Do you see why, friends, Peter links this word with being alert to the devil's prowlings and seeking someone to devour or destroy? And Peter doesn't just like the devil to a lion, but to a roaring lion. One commentator parallels this to a bloodthirsty, violent, insatiable lion, insatiable for its prey, always on the prowl. Friends, we've got to wake up to the fact that the devil is not vaguely or haphazardly stalking for prey. He's eyeing us Christians one by one to see which of us he has the best chance of swallowing up, both body and soul. He's a crafty foe, according to Genesis 3.1. I'll expand on that in just a minute. Peter's use of the word devour here is also an interesting word. It means to swallow up, even to take a big gulp. I'm sure you've seen those nature specials where they show a giant boa constrictor eating a large animal. Its mouth is open wide and it takes a big gulp. The Welsh Christian minister Selwyn Hughes once said, The first step in spiritual warfare is to know the enemy, for until I know and understand my enemy, I will not be able to defeat him. 
You see, friends, we have to know our enemy. That is, know what our enemy can and cannot do. Do you know what the devil can and cannot do? You should. Then, equally important, we Christ followers have to know ourselves. That is, know what we can and cannot do. Do you know what you have the authority to do and what you don't have the authority to do? You should. Well, friends, let's take a preliminary look at what our enemy, the devil, can and cannot do. And this will take us to Job chapters 1 and 2. Now, in chapters 1 and 2, I want us to notice the three C's. First, in one one, the character of Job. This man, Job, was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Second, in one five, the concern of Job for his children. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them, his children, to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. And third, Notice the conversation that took place between the Lord God and Satan about Job in chapters 1, 6 through 12, and chapter 2, 1 through 10. In verses 6 through 12, God gives us his estimation of Job to Satan, saying, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Immediately, Satan rebuffs, telling God that Job only fears him because God is protecting him in his household and everything he owns. Then Satan challenges God to a duel, so to speak. Strike everything he has and he will curse you to your face. So God accepts Satan's challenge and gave him permission to touch all he had, but not to lay a finger on him personally. Well, chapter 2 then expands on this a little. On another day, Satan comes before the Lord God with his report. Again, God begins by saying, in effect, So, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Friends, I'm going to leave that mystery for you to solve, reading it in chapter 1, the things Satan chose to do to Job and his family. Because, friends, the point I want to make here is that these two brief portions in Job 1 and 2 tell us a lot about our enemy, the devil or Satan. They tell us just what Satan can and cannot do. First, Satan cannot operate outside God's sovereign control of his activities and degrees of influence. We see in these two chapters that Satan is accountable and answerable to God. Second, Satan's degree of influence is regulated by the direct permission of God. Therefore, Satan is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. His power is granted, limited, and supervised. Third, Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be in two places at the same time. He has to roam around himself to discover things. Of course, he has his minions to also get the dirt on us. And fourth, Satan is not omniscient. He does not know all things. He couldn't even accurately predict Job's responses. 
Friends, contrary to popular opinion and the misinformation propagated by some teachers, Colossians 3.3 reminds us that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. This tells us that Satan is not privy to our thoughts and not automatically privy to our out loud prayers or conversations either. Remember now, Satan's been watching the human race from its inception, so he's become a master at predicting behaviors. Friends, we're the ones who attribute to Satan abilities he does not have. For example, how many of us, when things are going haywire, or we're just under the load of pressure, anxiety, or suffering in some way, we just cavalierly say something like, Oh, well, Satan's working overtime on me. Or even, Satan's inflicting blah, blah, blah on me or us as a church. Be honest with me for a moment, friends. I live in a little town northwest of Phoenix, Arizona. I'm not famous. I likely do not have a huge influence on a large population of people where I live. Do I honestly believe that the devil himself, Satan, really cares about me? A puny little pastor with a relatively small impact on the entire earth and the grand scheme of things? Now, maybe this has changed some since I began this radio program. I don't know. Now, don't get me wrong, friends. I don't don't misunderstand me to be saying that I or we are not occasionally the object of demonic influence or activity. Satan, while not omnipotent, omnipresent, or omniscient, obviously has organized an administrative network of minions, the demons, that rival any global network communication system ever devised by humans. I wonder if he uses the Internet. Charles Baudelaire, who I quoted earlier, also said, Anything the devil does is always done well. Pastor Chuck Swindoll once said, Our adversary is a master strategist, forever fogging up our minds with smoke screens. This is why, friends, we must know our enemy. The Apostle Paul told us we should not be ignorant of his schemes. Remember, Genesis 3.1 said he is crafty. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul wanted to be sure that Satan didn't outwit them because they were not ignorant of his schemes. One translation says devices here. A modern-day 21st century equivalent might be mind games. I say this because the Greek word Paul uses here is noema, and it's related to the mind and the intellect. And to demonstrate the full-orbed activities of the devil, Paul uses another word in Ephesians 6.11, which says, Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. This is a really cool word, too, friends. It's methodia, from where we get our English word method. This word implies pursuing an orderly and technical procedure in the handling of a subject. Its range of meaning includes searching, scheming, craftiness in the sense of well-crafted trickery, and methodology in the sense of organizing evil doing. You see, friends, Satan in Scripture is pictured as methodical in his pursuit to devour us. The question, then, that we have to ask ourselves is, are we equally methodical in our pursuit of our relationship with God and our dealings with each other? 
In 1 Peter 5, 5 through 11, particularly the word you is plural, and why the NIV translators put all of you in the second half of verse 5. Friends, only when we know our enemy well can we ever hope to resist him, standing firm in the faith, as verse 9 instructs us. Over time, there have certainly been numerous portrayals of the devil in television and songs. One of my favorite songs is the 1968 portrayal written by Mick Jagger and recorded by the Rolling Stones. The song was called Sympathy for the Devil. Here are some of the lyrics. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year, stolen many man's soul and faith. I was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain, made damn sure that Pilate washed his hands and sealed his fate. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. What's puzzling you is just the nature of my game. Just as every cop is a criminal, and all the sinners saints, as heads as tails, call me Lucifer. I'm in need of some restraint. So if you meet me, have some courtesy, sympathy, and some taste. Use all your well-earned politeness, or I'll lay your soul to waste. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. What's puzzling you is just the nature of my game. Along Christian lines, another favorite song of mine was written in 1987 by Bob Hartman of the band Petra. Listen to some of these lyrics. Son of the morning, highest of all, you had so much going till you took the fall. Had a place in the glory, but you wanted it all. Impossible odds, but you had the gall. It seemed so unlikely that you would rebel, such a worthy opponent that you knew so well. But you went down fighting when you heard the bell, took a third of all heaven when you went to hell. This means war, and the battle's still raging. War, and though both sides are waging, the victor is sure, and the victory secure. But till judgment we all must endure. This means war. Then came the cross. You thought you had won. You thought you had conquered God's only Son. So much for Jesus, you said in jest. Then you got a visit from an unwelcome guest. Now it's all over, down to the wire, counting the days to your own lake of fire. But you'll go down fighting for all that you're worth, to try and abolish his image on earth. This means war, and the battle's still raging. War, and though both sides are waging, the victor is sure, and the victory secure. But till judgment we all must endure, this means war. Friends, a Welsh proverb states, The devil has three children, pride, falsehood, and envy. And an anonymous quote aptly says, The devil is perfectly willing for a person to profess Christianity as long as he or she doesn't practice it. Friends, I'd like to conclude our time today with rereading our portion from 1 Peter 5, 8-11. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. 
Amen. And to that, friends, I'll also say, Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of our program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback and what these programs mean to you. A listener recently wrote in regarding Part 16 from our last series on Acts, Parting is Such Sweet Sorrow. Another great message. I love the reference to falling asleep and falling out of the window. This was a reference to Acts 20 when Eutychus fell out the window and died, and Paul resurrected him. The listener went on to humorously say that maybe he was narcoleptic and didn't realize it. L-O-L. In any case, Paul and the gospel triumphed. Well, thank you for the encouraging feedback. And remember, friends, podcasts of A Word from the Word are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu icon for local program podcasts. And the podcasts of A Word from the Word are freely available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Share them with family or friends who may be blessed or challenged by these teachings. And keep in mind, friends, that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. If it's blessing or edifying you, please join the support team. Your faithful and sacrificial support helps keep this program on the air. Just write me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. 